New writing. New writing. New writing. New writing. You're listening to a podcast by New Writing North. This episode of the New Writing North podcast was recorded at Durham Book Festival 2018. In this episode, one of the world's leading forensic anthropologists, Professor Dame Sue Black, introduces her new book, All That Remains: A Life and Death. This gripping memoir provides a fascinating look at death, its causes, our attitudes towards it, and the forensic scientist's way of analysing it. Sue is in conversation with Claire Malcolm, Chief Executive of New Writing North. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Congratulations, you got the tickets. I feel like Willy Wonka. (laughs) (laughs) Many, many more people than we were able to fit in this room wanted to get into this event today, so you did well. Um, Congratulations, it's going to be worth your while. Um, (laughs) No pressure. No pressure. I'm Claire Malcolm. I'm the chief executive of New Writing North, and we're the company that produces the book festival. And it was my great um, pleasure to interview Sue at an event we did back in May in Newcastle called Crime Story, when this book had just come out. Mm -hmm. And I was just saying to Sue that the amazing, wonderful thing to see happen over the summer is just how this book has spread like wildfire. And I know so many different types of people who have read it and loved it. Um, And I'm sure sure many of you, if you have already, will also as well. So let me introduce um, Sue to you. Professor Dame Sue Black is one of the world's leading... anatomists and forensic anthropologists. Her expertise has been crucial to many high-profile criminal cases, and in 1999, she was the lead anthropologist for the British forensic team's work in the war crimes investigations in Kosovo. Her work is recognised internationally in the investigation of crimes as diverse as genocide and child abuse. She was one of the first forensic scientists to travel to Thailand following the Indian Ocean tsunami in 2004, to provide assistance in identifying the dead. She has just taken up a new post as Pro Vice-Chancellor for Public Engagement at Lancaster University, clever Lancaster University. Um, Sue led the successful BBC Two series History Cold Case and in 2015 was interviewed on Desert Island Discs. And if you haven't listened to that, do, because it's you absolute You have to check stormer. it's the right Sue Black. Oh, uh, is there more there than one of you? Sue Blacks. And if what you're listening to is punk music, it's not me. <laughs> it's the other one. She's the one who saved Bletchley Park. Oh, right. We get confused. Oh. So I, I, sorry, I have problems. I never stop talking. But um, she gets emails about dismembered bodies. And I get emails about code breaking. Oh. But it's neither of us, so we have to do the swap. Oh, how, in, how interesting. How, that She's was much quite annoying as well. Oh, no, it's fantastic. <laughs> and we finally met for the first time after about 10 years in Dundee about six months ago. It was great fun. Oh, we did a fantastic. Sue Black meets Sue Black moment. Fantastic. <laughs> just to finish off, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> because I don't want to miss the final bit. So in 2016, Sue was appointed Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire for her service to forensic anthropology. And we're here to talk about this amazing book, All That Remains, which is kind of subtitled A Life in Death. Um, And it's a really interesting kind of book in terms of the approach you've taken to it. Because I guess, as Sue Black, famous forensic anthropologist, you could have written quite a straightforward science-y kind of book about all your expertise. But you chose to weave in a a kind of an autobiographical story, really. Um, And I thought it was fascinating when you write about your younger years and your family how it made complete sense that the child Sue Black that you described turned into the, the woman you are. Can you talk a little bit about the, there's a lovely, growing up? Sorry. There's a lovely quote um, that Steve Jobs, and I haven't, I haven't got the words for it, but Steve Jobs said, as you get older, what you get is that lovely moment to be able to stop and reflect and turn and look at the life behind you. And when you can see where the signposts are and the path that you chose, sometimes they make sense. And it's about having the confidence to know that the steps that are in front of you, you don't know where they are yet, they'll join up as well. So it is quite easy when you get older to, to look back and think, oh, I can see where, where I've come and how you've done that. But I think your decision-making at the time is often fundamentally flawed because, you know, we all make wrong decisions, but you have to just make the best out of them. But people ask me, why, why write this now? And part of it was, uh, somebody asked me, what's the book that you'd most like to read? And I would have loved to have read the book that's not and will never be written, 
which would be my grandmother's life. So my grandmother grew up in Glen Elg, which if you know where Glen Elg is, and you probably don't, it's in the middle of the middle of nowhere on the west coast of Scotland. And it's a tiny, tiny little hamlet. And she grew up there at, towards the end of the 1800s. And I would love to have known what her life was like there, what it was like for her moving to the great metropolis that was Inverness, meeting her husband, going through the wars as she did. Yeah. But I'll never know because she didn't write it. And all of her stories then have been lost, apart from the ones that I remember her telling me. And she was a great storyteller. Some of them were true, a lot of them weren't. But she was a great storyteller. And so was her son, who was my father. And you write about her having second sight. Oh, she was a West Coaster. She was a Tuchter. So the Tuchters on the West Coast um, are absolutely steeped in mysticism, or of her time anyway, mysticism and ghosts and spirits and all of those otherworldly things. And, you know, she would... She always said that death walked with her. Death was her friend, because death walked with her every single day. And because she was a young woman in the 1800s in Glenelg, it would have been improper for her to have had a friend who was a man. So death for her was always a woman. And she had this most amazing ability that some people have, that no matter how old you are, she could talk at your level. She never talked down to you. She always talked at you. So when you were nine, you felt that there was someone who was really listening to you. You'd have a question that was the most important thing on the planet, which probably was utterly ridiculous to her, but she never made you feel that way. Mm. And she always talked to you at that level. So she was my, my friend and my companion throughout and she, had, and she would talk frankly about Very life frankly. and death stuff. Very frankly. Yeah. So that when um, she smoked a lot of cigarettes a day, and so it was no surprise when she was taken into hospital and they opened up her chest and went, oh, no, close that. There's <laughs> nothing we can do with that. And I can remember as a teenager being very, very upset about that because I was going to lose my grandmother. She was the most important person to me, which is no disrespect to my mother, but my grandmother was really important to me. Yeah. And I can remember her being very cross with me and saying, why are you crying? I said, because I'm going to lose you. And she said, no, you're not. You're never going to lose me. Because who I am and the memories of me and the way I talk, it's all inside your head. It's all there anyway. So I don't ever leave you. And if you need me, I'm going to sit on your left shoulder. And so for the entirety of your life, if there's anything you ever want to ask me, just listen. And you know, that bloody woman has stopped me from having so much fun because I've listened to her advice all of my life. Oh. And, you know, we're going to have words if there's something on the other side. But she was hugely important. But as a young woman kind of coming of age, you were, it seems to me from reading this book, you were just kind of naturally not, not scared of certain things to do with no. death and bodies. You worked in a butcher's shop. I did. Not many teenage girls would no, but highlight before, of... In many ways, before that, my, my father, my, my maiden name was Gunn, and my father was a tremendous shot. <laughs> and um, he would come home with rabbits and deer and all sorts of things. And my mother was a bit squeamish, so it was my job to, to gut them, to grill them, to, to be able to skin them, you know, to get them ready for the pot. So I never had any squeamishness around mm. animal carcasses. And then when I was about 12, I can remember my father saying to me, what are you going to do for a job? And I had thought he meant when I grew up, but he meant now. When That's you're 12, job. what yeah. job are you going to get? Because it was expected, true Scottish Presbyterianism, you know, you need to earn your way in this life and you need to do it now. And he informed me very clearly that he expected half of my earnings, which was £3 a week, to go to my mother for board and lodging. And so for me, that said to me, my mother needs that three pounds a week for board and lodging, so I have to work. And so I never missed a Saturday, I never missed a holiday, because I felt it was my contribution to the family living. Not that they needed it, but mm. it, it sort of was that work ethic. Yeah. And so I find myself in a butcher shop. And so going from gutting beasts to, to working in a butcher shop is a very natural progression. And when I went to university, I was lousy at most things, so that I never... I never quite got why you had to count whether fruit flies had round bottoms or pointed bottoms, which had something to do with genetics, and I never, ever got it. I never got why I had to cut so many plant stems to look at them under the microscope. And by sort of the end of second year, I was really questioning what on earth I was doing there. And I, and I thought I was doing something quite grown up. I decided the only two things I was any good at, surprisingly, was botany. And we'd just done some histology, looking at cells down microscopes. And so I went to the, the botanist, 
in the hope that he would inspire me, that botany was, in fact, the way forward for me. And bless him, but he was the singularly most dull man on the planet. And as a result, I said, I'm not going to do that. So it wasn't a terribly um, mature reason why I chose. I went to anatomy, and they said, no, 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 no more cells and microscopes. What you will get is a human body, and you dissect it from top to toe in a year. And I thought, rabbits, butcher shop, it's just another animal. It's actually dissecting and cutting another animal. I think I'll be okay with that. And it was as if the curtains opened on sunshine. It was just such a fantastic year of learning and having the opportunity to look inside somebody's body who's gifted you that ability and to be able to learn. It was just fantastic. Do you remember the first body? Yes. Oh, you always is that, do. Is that how you, you're trained? There's a body that you work with? You always remember your first period. body. Yep. And you, we never know what the names, and students still don't know the names of the actual donors, certainly not in the universities that I've been in. And so you, you tend to give the body a name because you personalise your relationship with that person. Mm. When that person was alive, they made a decision to donate their body for the purposes solely of your education, of making you learn. They don't do it for money. Um, they may have other reasons, but the only thing they ask of you is that this is for learning. So you, you enter into a personal relationship with them. So you have to give them a name. And I've never heard anybody call a cadaver by an inappropriate name. So ours was Henry. And the reason was that there was an alabaster bust of Henry Gray, who wrote Gray's, The Gray's Anatomy, not that dreadful television series, The <laughs> Gray's Anatomy. Um, and so we called ours Henry. And so when you went into the dissecting room for the first time, what you had on the table was this mound covered with a white sheet. And there's no doubt that you're terrified. The fear of not knowing is actually much more acute than any other fear. And then once you, you pull back the covers and you have this, this man in front of you, thinking, oh, I'm going to have to put a scalpel on. And your hands are doing this. And, and we've made it really no advances in the way in which we, we create scalpels. We still have these long metal handles that have a ridge on them, and you have these little blades that you have to fit on them. And because your hands are shaking, one of the best bit of advice I ever got, best bit of advice I ever got was, if you see blood on the cadaver, it's yours. <laughs> and all of us do, just trying to get the blade on, so that you know, before you get anywhere near dissection, you're wrapped up in plasters, trying to stop everything from bleeding all over the cadaver. Um, but that very first moment when you cut through human skin, and you don't know what it's going to feel like, and you almost have this unnatural feeling that, that the person's going to sit up and scream at you, which, of course, they never do. Never, ever, ever. The, the movies are wrong. And you make that cut, and there's no, there's no mistake. What does, what does it feel like? It feels so that the human bodies that we dissected were formalin um, embalmed. That made them tougher. They're, they're tougher. They're very leathery and slightly grey in appearance. We used to be terribly naughty um, in that when we would have the ambulance and paramedics into the dissecting room just to teach them, what we would do is we would keep making reference to the fact that the muscles in the body looked a bit like tuna fish. And anatomists always relate everything back to food. I don't know why, but well, I do. But, so we'd always talk about tuna fish, knowing full well that every time we had them visit, we, all, we had a relationship with the kitchens. So when they went home, it was always tuna salad. They never ate it. Um, so it's a bit, if you can imagine what tuna in a tin looks like, then the, the skin and the muscles were that sort of colour. Okay. And as you cut through, just taking a line down the front, there's a reason why we start there, is because there's a bone directly underneath, and it means you can't cut too deeply. However much of a mistake you make, you really can't go too deeply. And as you cut down, the skin parts, and underneath you can see sometimes a thick layer, but sometimes a thinner layer of yellow fat. And as you cut into it, it starts to liquefy. And then as you catch the edge and you peel it back, then what you start to see is you cut across little red circles, tiny, tiny little dots, and you begin to realize those are blood vessels until you can actually reflect the skin off the whole way. What you don't learn is you're holding them with, with forceps. And of course, it's a bit like a, a slippery fish. As you pull on it and you cut, often what happens is that the, the forceps slip away. So you get a face full of fat and you get a face full of embalming fluid. So you learn very quickly that you make a little vertical hole in the skin that you can pop your finger through, and that causes you the traction to be able to cut down. So you learn the little tricks as you go along. There are very few people in the world, I mean, you know, 
the likes of you and kind of surgeons who get to see inside our bodies. I mean, is there something special? I mean, I guess it's a kind of privilege, isn't it? To see, oh, huge! To see the working, to see how we work, how we're built in a way. I mean, what we see on the outside is really nothing compared to what's in the inside. And in anatomy, more than any other subject, when you start to realise just how many muscles there are, just how many nerves there are, how many blood vessels, how many joints, how many things you have to learn, it's huge even to be able to study that and nothing else for a year. And in all honesty, it takes you several years reinforcing the knowledge mm-hmm. to actually start to understand the three yeah. dimensions. But it's just amazing when you think that this clump of trillions and trillions of cells that have been organized into tissues and into organs all work together mm. to keep this thing alive. It, death teaches you much more about living than it teaches you about death. That's very interesting. So back to you. Oh. <laughs> How did you get then from these first forays into anatomy to into the forensic anthropology side of what you do did that was that a natural kind of thing or planned thing or uh, it was one of those i had no choice and the reason i had no choice is that when you got to fourth year you had to do a research project and all the research projects were on things like lead levels in rat brain or carcinoma in hamster pituitary and i am utterly petrified of rodents alive or dead. So a dead mouse over there, I'd be out there and I'd be a mess, quite frankly. So when we have a mouse in the kitchen, it's my youngest daughter that has to catch it because I'm not going to do it. And if it's dead, I can't walk over it because it's going to leap up and it's going to eat my leg completely. (laughs) So because all of the projects were about rodents, I couldn't do those. And so I went to one member of staff and said, is there anything else I can do? And she said, well, why don't we look at bone? Fantastic. As long as it doesn't have a rat, or a hamster, or a capybara, or any kind of rodent associated with it, I'll do it. And that was yeah. why my, my honours project was an identification from bone. And then I went to do a PhD, and then uh, we got a phone call from the police that said, uh, we had a young man, you've got to bear in mind, I'm so old, this is pre-Alec Jeffries and DNA <laughs> days. Um, we had a, a young man who crashed his microlite plane off the east coast of Scotland, and he went down into the, the, Mon- the Montrose Basin. <laughs> And his body wasn't found for, oh, a couple of weeks. And by the time a body was washed ashore, there was no head, no hands, no feet. And we think a, a, a passing ship or a boat had, propeller had taken that off. So we had a headless, handless, footless torso. And we were called across because there, were, there was no fingerprints. There was no dental records. There was no DNA in that day. So it was, how do you identify him? And it came down to saying, yes, he's male, because we could see that externally. But how old was he? How tall would he have been? Those sorts of things. And so myself and my supervisor were asked, would we go and help? And I thought, can I go from a dissecting room to a mortuary? And actually, I found it it was a very straightforward step. And it came down to um, an incredible thing in that His mother, well, his girlfriend said that he had a birthmark below his left nipple. And his mother said, my son was perfect. He had no such birthmark. And so the age was right, the height was right, everything about the individual was right. It came down to the birthmark. And you have to ask, who knows you better, the person that gave birth to you or the person you slept with last night? And the answer was the person he slept with last night. So he did have a birthmark underneath his left nipple. How interesting. But getting mum to accept that it was him was extremely challenging Mm. because she had set her stall out that said he didn't have that. So if this individual has it, it can't be my son. And that's a really interesting point at Mm. which the identification creeps into the acceptance by families over what they've Mm. lost. I definitely want to talk more about your relationship with the families of the younger things. But just so we're really clear, because I guess most of us here, probably our experience of what we think forensic um, jobs are is probably more around the pathology side because of the crime dramas we watch. Can you just explain to us how the anthropological side of forensic works? So so people ask you, what's the difference between forensic anthropology and forensic pathology? And the answer is about £100,000 a year in your salary, is the truth. (laughs) Um, So that we, we tend to be scientists who are not particularly well paid to start with. But our job is primarily... I'm going to start the other way. Pathologist's job is primarily to look at the manner of death so how death has, has led up to the death and the cause of death. Lots of other things as well, but primarily in manner and cause of death. What we're interested in anthropologists is that when the body is found, we don't know who that person was. And our job is to try and read their body, a bit like a book, 
and try and read their history of their life within their body and being able to extract those bits of information that will allow you to say, I think we're looking for a male. We're looking for someone between 25 and 30 years of age. He's probably going to be white in origin. You know, he's going to walk with a limp and he's had a previous break in a collarbone or whatever it may be. We build up that picture of their life that helps us to identify who they might have been in death. And is it usually historic cases or historical cases that you're working on? Is that the majority of the work? No, not at all. Or, um, or just nameless people or no, unidentified people? Uh, well, they're historical in terms of some of them, in terms of they haven't been found for a long time. So I, I talk in here about the man from Balmore. And the man from Balmore was a young man who um, had been hanging from a tree um, just in a, a, a park outside Glasgow. And young boys had seen them and thought, oh, it was a guy, a, a guy, you know, a sort of a Halloween guy. And as they got closer, they realised it wasn't. Being able to identify that individual so long after their death, we weren't able to achieve because nothing we found in terms of his DNA or any of his injuries has allowed us to get to his name. So sometimes they may have been dead for a long time, but the case is very current. Mm. Or it might be that we're looking at mass fatality events like the Asian tsunami, where in fact it really is very recent. Yeah. And where bodies are fragmented, that's often where we come into our own as well. Because so I think learned the word, I'm trying to look no, at my notes, sorry. indents, is it? The, the kind of un. Unidents. 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 Yeah. So the, and there are quite a few of these, aren't there? There are. You talk about them oh. around police stations and. Yep. And they, they will hold them for as long as they can. Um, to try and find an identity, but it comes a point at which often they will be buried as unidentified individuals. And I can't help thinking, you know, there was a huge excitement when you came into the world and somebody gave you a name, whatever that name was. There's something about closing the circle that at the end of that, we should go out of the world with that name as well. So, so there's a big drive for us in terms of trying to get the name for the individual. In fact, there's one just come out in the news, day before yesterday it was, which was a young man who was found uh, near Chorley. And we had done that case, gosh, 20 odd years ago, and he'd not been identified. And then totally by accident, DNA of somebody else came up in a crime scene that they were able to trace back. Mm -hmm. And so 20 odd years after we've been involved in the case, that individual's now been identified. And we get that great sense of full stop at the end of a sentence, case closed. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, in terms of your relationship with the families or the people around things, you're off, I think it struck me reading the book that you're often in quite an interesting place where you're not the investigation, but your responsibility for telling a story, piecing some things together and explaining how something might have happened. You're nearer the families, aren't you? Or they're looking to you for certainty or for the explanation. The honest truth is we try to keep away from families and there's a reason for that. There needs to be a very strong bond developed between what's called the family liaison officer, FLO. Mm -hmm. So the family liaison officer and the family. And so you introduce as few other players into that relationship as possible. So we feed our information into the police who lead it into the FLO, mm -hmm. who pass it on to the family. So very rarely in a UK case are we involved with families. When we work overseas, then we're put into a very difficult position because often we will have families there. Yeah. And we're not trained for that. We're not trained as counsellors. And it can be really difficult for us when somebody is there with an enormous amount of grief and we're just not equipped to be able to mm. cope with it. Well, let's talk about Kosovo then because, I mean, that was an incredible moment in world history, really, wasn't it, in European history? And you were called, you got, you literally got literally. a call. Mm. Um, tell us about how that happened. And I was sitting in the garden um, at home in Stonehaven and the phone went and I answered the phone and it was a pathologist called Peter Vanessas, who was at Glasgow at the time. And Peter said, you know, what are you doing? I said, oh, sitting in the garden, it's a lovely day. And he said, what are you doing Saturday? And I thought, oh, he's asking us for dinner. That's so nice of him. <laughs> I said, nothing. He said, great, because we've got a flight. You're flying into Macedonia. We need you in Kosovo on Saturday. So this was on a Wednesday. And um, I said, OK, how long am I going for? No idea. Uh, what am I going to be doing? Don't really know. What paperwork am I going to need? Don't worry about it. We'll sort it out when you get here. 
So it all sounds terribly exciting and very sort of James Bond. It really isn't when you're in the middle of it, mm. when you don't know, do I need a bikini or a parka? I was just going you to know, say, and I hope... I don't wear a bikini. And I was but, thinking, is this a really facile question yeah. to ask? But I was going, what do you pack when uh, you don't know what you're Lots of clothes that you're into. prepared to throw away at the mm. end of the day is what it amounts to. Um, you need to pack everything because the nights were incredibly cold and the days were incredibly mm -hmm. hot. And much of the time, you're, you're kitted out in those dreadful white Teletubby suits anyway. But the smell of everything you do just percolates through absolutely everything that, that you wear. And you think you don't smell. And I remember coming home one, one particular um, tour from Kosovo. And I thought, you know, I'd, I'd showered completely. I was in new clothes. And I arrived. And my husband said, darling, I love you, but you smell like a dead dog. <laughs> and that doesn't really mean that there's going to be an awful lot of, you know, conducive conversation between <laughs> us when you smell like a dead dog. But it, it is that all-pervasive sort of smell. Would you like to read a little bit of you, Yeah, you, you asked me to read a, a particular bit out of Kosovo. I'm not very good at the reading bit, but I'll do my best for you. There is nothing glamorous about working in a white scene of crime suit. Black rubber police wellies, three sizes too big, a face mask and double latex gloves in searing heat. And thus attired, I stood at the door of the charred shell of the outhouse and looked in on a nightmare scene that could never be adequately described. The central door of the building led into a short corridor with one room to either side. And there were at least 30 bodies in one room and another dozen or more in the other, all piled on top of each other in the corner, diagonally opposite the internal doors, all badly burned, all extensively decomposed and all buried under fallen roof tiles. They'd been there for three months as the Kosovo summer heated up, readily accessible to insects, rodents, and packs of wild dogs. They were boiling with maggots, fragmented and partly scattered and eaten by the scavenging animals. There was only one way to clear the space, and that was to strap on knee protectors, get down on your hands and knees, and work systematically inwards from the door, lifting and sifting every piece of debris down to floor level. As well as retrieving all body parts and personal effects, such as clothing, identity papers, jewellery, or other items that might be identifiable by family and friends, it was vital that we collected all evidence relating to the crime, which included bullets and casings, as it might be possible to link them at a later date to a specific weapon, and from there to the person who fired it, their commanding officers, and so on, all the way to the top. This is a chain of evidence, and as we all know, a chain is only ever as strong as its weakest link. We did not want to turn out to be the forensic evidence gathered by our team. You can't wear thick rubber gloves for work like this because you need to be able to feel what you can't necessarily see. Bone feels like bone and nothing else. And it was necessary to begin to process a body part as soon as we came upon it. We'd clear around the approximate corporeal shape of an individual to try to isolate one person at a time, although this was challenging given the commingled nature of the scene. The heat was ferocious, the smell almost unbearable, and the constant drip of sweat down your back and into your gloves and off your forehead into your eyes, which left them constantly stinging, was unpleasant in the extreme. We were warned to be on the alert for IEDs, improvised explosive devices, which had been found in such sites in the past. And indeed, a device had already been discovered just before I arrived, connected to a tripwire across the path and designed to maim rather than kill. I'd never seen a bomb in my life, and I wouldn't have recognized one if I'd found it in my porridge. And I related my concerns to our SO13 explosives expert, who was an absolute gem. And he said the best thing I could do if I came across anything at all that worried me was just stand up, call it in, and leave the space. They would then suit up, check it out for us. He also advised me not to delve into the pockets of clothing, as there had been reports of razor blades and hypodermics being placed there, again with the aim of causing injury rather than killing. And he looked me in the eye and he said very slowly and clearly, whatever you do, never, ever cut a blue wire. Talk about messing with my mind, as if I was going to cut anything. I was far too terrified. So picture the scene. Sweat dripping down my face and down my arms, into my latex gloves, on my hands and knees, sifting through rubble, face to face with boiling masses of maggots and rotting tissue, and suddenly I spot the glint of metal. How much bravery am I going to show? None. Absolutely none. Full double yellow streak right down my back, top to bottom. And so I called it in. And we retreated, and the explosives guys suited up and went in. And they seemed to be in there for hours. 
When they walked back to the base, where we were all standing around kicking dust, their faces were grave. And they stripped off the body armor, and the lead officer came over to me, and he stood very close, and his mouth was almost touching my ear as he told me very clearly and without a hint of paternal compassion, you will never understand just how lucky you are to still be alive, little lady. And as he raised his hand into my eyeline, I could see he was holding a soup spoon. <laughs> For the rest of my time in Kosovo, I became the cutlery queen. Every time I pulled back the covers in my bed, there were soup spoons. Every time a bowl of soup arrived, it had 12 spoons neatly arranged around the bowl. And that's how you cope in environments like that, is you make fun of each other. If they make fun of you, they like you. If they leave you alone, they don't. And so it was their way of accepting me, and I became the cutlery queen. I, know. I mean, it's, of course, we have to work out, you have to work out how to survive yes. the intensity of those experiences. But you were describing there excavating a mass grave of organised killing on a scale unimaginable to most of our imaginations, you know. I mean, how do you... Is there a professional Sue that, that goes into those situations there and leaves behind... Be. You must have to leave there some stuff be. behind to do um, things like Because that. it's very clear. I mean, I think I... Not necessarily desensitised, but I think my whole process of going through butcher shops and anatomy sounding, you know, almost amusing, but I think there is a, an element of, of learn, having time to learn how to cope with the different events that you place mm. yourself in. And when we go out to something like that, we are there as scientific experts. We're not there to condemn somebody. We're not there to find somebody guilty of a crime. We're not there to empathize with the families. We have a job to do. And our job is to find the evidence, collect the evidence, analyze the evidence, present the evidence. It's not our job to actually feel anything. Mm. And it's, it's hard. Of course it's hard. And I'd, I'd be a liar if I said you don't um, feel a, a lot of the, the difficult situations, but you have to compartmentalize it. Because if you then decide it's your job to find this person guilty, you're no longer an objective scientist. Mm. And in that case, you're failing the courts because the courts require you to be unbiased. It's not your job mm. to find somebody guilty. It's your job to present the evidence and let somebody else make that decision. So you have very clear purpose, but in that context, you're also operating in a war zone with peacekeepers, anti-terror, all different kinds yeah. of um, services there, weren't they? And a very heated situation where a lot of people have died, a lot of people want to find out if their relatives' bodies are going to come out of that place. And you really, and it's a makeshift setup. I mean, it's probably about as pressurised it must be as it's possible yeah, to get. That's what, that's what I like. <laughs> so I like to go in on the ground floor of something. Because that way, I mean, we, we were brought up with Blue Peter and Dad's army. We can make anything out of sticky back plastic. And we can beg, borrow, and steal just about everything and anything that's needed from us. And I love that challenge of being the first on the ground to make something work. Mm. Once, you know, Kosovo had been running for about a year, the entire bureaucratic machine of the UN moved in. And so there were rules and regulations. I don't do so well with them. So usually by that point, that's the point at which I'll move out. Yeah. I like to make things work from day one. So there's a challenge within that. And we had, we had the most marvellous military um, protection around us. We, it, was, it was a German tank division. And it was the first time that the Germans had been deployed on a, a, a global stage since the Second World War. And so bless them, these, these lovely young men, they were very Germanic. Everything had to be by the book. And of course, we don't do that. Put the Brits abroad and we're, dread, we're absolutely dreadful. And so we, we had an impasse with them. And it's about finding the way to overcome the impasse in relationships is really important. And so we found, just through conversation, that they hadn't spoken to their mums or their girlfriends in a long time. And we had the Foreign and Commonwealth Office satellite phone. So we were able to let them speak to their mums or speak to their girlfriends. And then when the Foreign and Commonwealth Office got the bill for the phone, which was about £28,000, we thought that was a small price to pay for international absolutely. relations. But these, these German young men, oh, they became absolutely brilliant for us. The things that they found that made our lives easier to do our job because we'd broken down the barriers was mm -hmm. extremely important. That's the bits that I really like, finding the way out of the impasse. Yeah. 
And let's talk about what it's like to be a woman in that situation. Were you the only woman in On some of the teams, teams yes. Yeah. On some of the teams I was. Um, and you've got to bear in mind that you're dealing with no toilet facilities. So when you need to go, you need to trust that everybody is going to respect you. And they, they absolutely do. What I find easiest in a team like that is to adopt the role of mum. Uh, because you're non-threatening. And you can tell them to go to bed when they've had too much to drink. And they will talk to you about what their problems are at home or mm. how they felt through the day. And for me, that's a comfortable role. Mm. I, I like being mum in those circumstances. It's a humanising yes. thing. I mean, there's a, uh, describe a, a very sad moment where you're, a child's body is found and you, you can't work out what the men are doing behind yeah. you. you want to, it, it, was, um, it was a particularly challenging site. It was very far out into, off, off the beaten track. So we had to park the cars and we had to walk for several miles. <laughs> And it, it was into a, a farmyard area, so it, it was a, a farm, sorry, area, it was a, a field of crops. And what the, the Serbs had done is they'd separated the children from their mothers and their grandparents, and they'd taken the children over to the other side of the field. And then they told the children to run to their mothers. And so as the children had run through the field, they used the children as moving targets. So they made the mothers and the grandmothers and grandfathers watch the children being killed. And then they killed all of them as well. So that we had a lot of children at that site. And uh, we, we had no mortuary facility. So this whole concept of CSI, if you think everything looks like CSI, it really doesn't. So we're in a field. We're literally doing the post-mortems on a piece of plastic on the ground in a field. And I've got a little, a little, a little girl's body in front of me. And, and she was largely intact, apart from her head injuries. And she was still wearing her outfit. And she still on her, had her little red Wellington boots on. And I was conscious on, on the periphery of my vision that there was just like a palisade of police wellies. And I sort of looked up, and all I could see were our police officers in front of me in a line, and I, I couldn't understand what they were doing. And what they were doing was that one of our team had made the cardinal mistake of transplanting his own daughter's face onto the little girl that we had, and he was losing it. So he was very, very upset about it. And his colleague's way of, of protecting him was to build a shield around him to give him his privacy, which I didn't think was what he needed. And when I realised that was what happened, off came the gloves, down went the suit, tied round the middle, round the back, and you throw your arms around him and you let him sob his heart out. And at the end of that, he was okay. And I think that's, that's something that as a woman in that situation, you can do. You do. deal with it differently. Yeah. We had a marvellous case where we had a, 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 a French... General, a French major, he was, French major, who was in charge of our security. And we had a senior police officer who was in charge of us. These were two men with testosterone levels off the scale, okay? And they hated each other. If it was rutting season, these stags would have been, you know, and they would not tolerate each other. And I'd just come back on tour, and we were at one of the scenes, and the, the, the major came forward. And he went to our, our, our team leader to shake hands with him, and I thought, Yes, we've got a breakthrough. And our team leader looked at his hand and went, no. And you think, why would you do that? Why would you do that? When somebody made the effort to put out the olive branch, why would you do that? So the French um, major came over to me and he put out his hand to shake my hand. And I said, no. And you could see him think, oh, great, you know, another one of these. I said, I thought you were French. He said, well, I am. I said, but I thought a Frenchman kissed a woman on both cheeks. And his face lit up. I got a huge kiss on both cheeks. And from that point forward, that, that military dealt through me mm -hmm. and didn't deal through our team leader. So sometimes it's about finding the politically incorrect, often really politically incorrect, <laughs> but do you know it doesn't matter as long as you can get the job done. You also had a very politically incorrect nickname at one point, didn't you? <laughs> do you... <laughs> Yeah, my husband was horrified. Which I was, I was quite horrified by it as well, but I kind of understood it. Yeah. You, you so know, you... the, the first crime scene that we were at, which is the one that I, I, I read about, um, they decided that we would have to have a press day. And you have, to, you have to let the press come in and they have to get their photographs and all of the dignitaries. And in fact, Robin Cook, um, who was our foreign secretary, visited as well that day. And I was the only woman on the team. And as we came out of the team, out of the scene and up to the, where the cordon was where you stripped off your, your white coat and you, you got your boots decontaminated and whatever it was. All we had was a, an absolute bank of photographers. 
And I turned to uh, John Bunn, who was our, our leader. And you've got to bear in mind, everybody has a nickname. So John Bunn was called Sticky, because he was Sticky Bunn. <laughs> um, and I turned to him and I said, Dear God, I said, from all of these cameras, I must look like the camp whore. And from that point onwards, every single Christmas card was to CW. And so CW stuck with it. And at one point when he was on the phone to my husband, I think, you know, it came clear what CW stood for. And my husband was absolutely horrified by it. But the very fact that you get the nicknames... Means you're in. Means you're, you're in. in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I didn't, yes, I did understand it. So, I mean, you have... You know, that's, that's one part of the amazing stuff you've done in life. But you've also, back in acade the academic world, or between the academy and the police service, done some quite amazing develop scientific developments around veins in hands. Can we talk a little bit about that? Because that was mind-blowing. So, in 2006, Nick Marsh... I, lo I love the way that, that things connect into the other. Nick Marsh was the head of the photographic service for the Met. And Nick had been out in Kosovo with me. And Nick used to say when he was introduced, oh, I know Sue Black, I slept with her. Back to the camp horror thing. <laughs> what he failed to usually mention was that there were 20 other people in the dormitory at the time sharing the space. And so Nick um, phoned me up one day and said, look, we've got a case and we don't know what to do with it. But we thought we're scraping the bottom of the barrel. And when we scrape the bottom of that barrel, we always think about you. <laughs> and so he said, what we've got is we've got a, a, a video of a young girl and she alleged that her father came into her room at night and abused her, sexually abused her. And she told her mother, and her mother didn't believe her. So she was a smart young girl. What she did is she left her Skype camera on. And I don't know if you know, but if you leave your Skype camera on running at night, it clicks into infrared mode, so you can see in the dark. And when infrared light interacts with the deoxygenated blood in your veins, your veins stand out like black tram lines, so you can see your veins. Now, I guarantee, if you look at the back of your right hand and then you look at the back of your left hand, the pattern of veins on your right and left hand will be different. If your hands are fat like mine, look at the insides of your wrist. And your vein pattern will be different to anybody else's in this room. If you're identical twins, your vein patterns are no more similar than they are to any other individual. And so what we had coming into view of the camera at half past four in the morning was the back of a hand and a forearm with a terrific vein pattern. And Nick said to me, we've got this, we don't know what to do with it. And I said, neither do I, but we'll have a look. And what we knew in anatomy was that, and if, if any of you are nurses or doctors, you'll know this, the only vein you can guarantee will be in position, if you can't see it, is the one that sits in the crook of your elbow. All the others are far too variable. If you can see it, you can get a cannula in it, but you can never predict where they would be. So we know that they're variable. And I said, well, look, all we can do is if we take the pattern of veins from the video and we compare it to Dad's veins, if they don't match, we can say it's not him. If they do match, I can't say it is him, but I can say it's somebody who's got the same vein pattern. Mm -hmm. And we know in anatomy that we've never come across anyone who has vein patterns that are the same. So we did that, and the vein patterns match. So we went to court, and it was the first time this evidence had ever been heard in court. So the judge called a voir dire, so sent the jury out to decide whether he was going to allow this evidence to be heard. And he decided that because since the times of Vesalius in the 1500s, we've kind of understood variation in anatomy, he would let the evidence in. And so I, I gave evidence. Jury went away, um, came back with their verdict, and found Dad not guilty. And I couldn't, I couldn't understand that. And I thought, what a classic thing, what did I do wrong? What did I not do in the science that was able to convince the jury? Because who else was in her room at half past mm. four in the morning that had the same superficial vein pattern as he did? But hey-ho. And I spoke to our barrister, and I said, what did we do wrong? And she said something that stayed with me and, and really galvanized the research that we went on to do is she said, I don't think you did anything wrong. I think the science was fine. I just don't think the jury believed the girl because she didn't break down and she didn't cry. Mm -hmm. And I thought, dear God, you know, that young girl who first of all was brave enough to tell her mother, mm -hmm. was then brave enough to capture the image, was then brave enough to go to the police and <coughs> accuse her father, was being told by a jury that she'd lied. Believe her. Now, I don't know what happened to her, but she would have gone back into the family home with a father, mm. found not guilty of abuse, because the jury found him not guilty, so therefore he is not guilty. 
And statistics tell me that she probably ran away from home. If she ran away from home, she was probably on the streets. Mm. She was on the streets, she was probably in prostitution. She was in prostitution, she was probably on drugs. Mm. Chances of her being alive still today are probably quite slim. Mm. And so from that point forward, we said, we need to do research. And we, we collected a huge database of, of hands. We got funding for it. We wrote the papers for it. Um, and we've really solidified the science. And at the end of the day, that's her legacy. She may never know about mm. it. But what she went through, because she was so brave, even if her father was not guilty, this is her mm. legacy, is that from that point forward, the research that we've done have brought 28 life sentences for paedophiles and now over 300 years of prison sentencing for those that I think choose to abuse what are our most vulnerable people in society. Mm. And this is, this is something that stays with a child. It's a life sentence. It stays with that child for the rest mm. of their life. Mm. So that's her legacy. And that's what Amazing. we went on to do. Amazing in innovations. I mean, especially because I remember when we talked before, you were mentioning that a lot of the kind of the way that paedophiles are caught now is through films, captured films, you know, those films that are circulating. And you can identify from the hands and things seen in some of those films, right. can't you? So, so it's, it's one of the rare crimes where the perpetrator films themselves committing the crime. So if you're going to rob a bank, you don't film yourself robbing a bank. Mm -hmm. You're going to murder your wife. You don't film yourself murdering, don't film yourself murdering your wife. Yeah. Um, but in this kind of crime, they do film themselves. And they film themselves because they want to go back and relive it. But they also want to take that footage and they can sell it as a commodity mm. so you can generate an income from it. Or what you can do is you can use it to increase your own status within your community so you can transfer those images to others. So when these come to us, then what we often have, most frequently it's, it's hands that we see. But we'll see forearms, we'll see abdomen, we'll see private parts, we'll mm. sometimes even see feet. And you never know what's in those images that we might be able to identify someone. But 82% of the cases that we take on result in a change of plea and that to guilty. And that's really important. People know they're caught. Because yeah. at that point, they think, actually, I'm going to change my plea because I will get a lesser sentence if I change my plea. But it means we save a tremendous amount of money and time in the courtrooms. But much more importantly, it means that these victims are not having to give evidence in court against their dad or their mum's yeah. boyfriend or whoever it may be. And it's much more likely that the case will then go all the way through. Fantastic. It's totally inspiring, Sue. Um, would anyone like to ask Sue a question? I've got loads more, and believe you me, there's lots to talk about in her book that we haven't even touched on. Um, but I know probably some of you here will have read the book already or might just have questions generally. Any questions? Hi. Um, I know you've done a lot of work with Val McDermott helping her with the crime books. Can I ask how that came about? She's a dreadful woman. <laughs> Singularly awful, dreadful woman who has spent an entirety of my career using me and abusing me. Never paying... No, sorry. So um, Val and I, we were on a, a radio programme. Um, it was a Sunday programme about death and religion, I think it was. And I was in the Aberdeen... I think I was in the Aberdeen studio and she was in the Manchester studio. And we'd never met before then. This is over 20 years ago, so this is a long time ago. And while we were waiting to go online, I, you know how sometimes you say things and you hear yourself saying it and you think, I know I shouldn't say this, but you know, I'm saying it anyway and I can't stop it now, is that I said to her, if you ever need any help or you ever need any advice, please feel free. Well, that dreadful woman phones up and absolute credit to her. She'll say, I've got a story, does this sound right? And I think I have a great respect for the crime writers who want to get it as accurate as possible because that says they have respect for their reader. It says, I want to make this as realistic as possible. And when she does that, that's fine. But she also goes on fishing expeditions. So she'll go on fishing expeditions to say, oh, what are you up to? Anything interesting? And before you know it, your research is in her novel before it's in any of the publication journals that you've got it into. And suddenly it becomes something that Val McDermott identified, and not you at all. So we've, we've got a very long relationship. And when we needed to raise some money to build a mortuary, um, she got nine of her crime writer friends together. And our principle for raising money was that... You know, if you're Chris Hoy, you want a velodrome named after you. Who'd want a mortuary named after them? <laughs> Crime writers. And so we, we set up a, a fundraising thing called Million for a Morgue. And it was getting all of the, the fans to vote for their own favourite crime writer so that we could, you know, um, raise the funds. 
And Val was never going to let anybody else win anyway. It was never going to happen. I think she'd have funded it herself if she had to. Um, and she got very, very concerned at one point because Stuart McBride was getting pretty darn close. Blue Peter style, we had totalizers so the whole world could see who was winning. Um, and Stuart was getting very close because he'd written a book called The Wholesome Adventures of Skeleton Bob. And just before Christmas, which is perfect timing, a child's book. And all the proceeds of that went to the Million for a Morgue as well. So we had tremendous fun over a couple of years doing book festivals with Val and Stuart and Geoffrey Deaver. I was at an event in, I think it was Brighton, where I had Geoffrey Deaver, Mark Billingham and Lee Child. And they had to stand up on a stage and convince the audience why the audience should vote for each one of them. And Jeffrey should have won, because Jeffrey Deaver said, I'm the one who looks most like a cadaver. <laughs> Which I thought, pretty good. Wasn't there a problem with the Lee Child? Yeah, there's a problem with Lee. Though, Lee's <laughs> always a problem. Uh, Lee, Lee's such a lovely man. And because he was one of the crime writers, um, if he said, you can't use my name, because if I win, you can't call this the child mortuary, because it just wouldn't have been appropriate. So he said, if I win, we call it Jack Reacher. So um, we called our mortuary is the Val McDermott mortuary. Our dissecting room is the Stuart McBride dissecting room. And each of our tanks in which we submerge our bodies has got the name of a crime writer on the front of them all, um, apart from Lee Childs, which has the Jack Reacher Jack tank. Reacher, and I always thought, if I ever need to raise more money, that's a direct line to Tom Cruise, isn't it? It is. It yeah. is. Yeah. I'm not sure Scientology would approve of it. I don't no, know. Well, we don't. I didn't, I didn't think about that. Yeah, that yeah. might be complicated. Okay. Any more questions? First of all, can I just say thank you? I've enjoyed every oh, minute of it. Oh, thank you. You're very kind. Uh, yeah. The part about um, sort of not getting over-emotionally involved, I can understand. I could even cope with the maggots and all of that sort of thing. But the thing I wouldn't be able to cope with smells unfortunately I've been blessed with a very strong sense of smell and I just wondered how you cope do you have a particular strategy or some method no. of minimizing the smells it, it does smell awful and the worst of all the smells is decomposing brain so brain smells worse than anything else and I had a young a young anthropology student in Kosovo with me and she wanted to um, shadow me and so I decided I would test whether she had the metal to actually do the job. And so I gave her a skull to clean out. So she had to remove the liquid brain. And um, can I say that she's now Scotland's leading forensic anthropologist, that I'm not there. So Lucina Hackman passed the test on the day. If you can cope with that, you can cope with anything. The worst thing you can do, and you see them in the police films putting Vic under their nose, don't do that, don't ever do that. It opens up your nasal passages, so you smell it worse. And it means that every time you smell Vic, your brain links back to the smell of decomposing bodies. So you just have to, you just get used to it. It's not pleasant, it really isn't. I can remember in, in Kosovo, um, at a place called Podievo Meat Market, what they'd said was, um, often what the, the Serbs would do is they would bury either a, a cow or a horse or something on top of the bodies of, of those that they'd murdered. So that if there was a smell, the idea was that if you, if you mm -hmm. dug down and you hit the cow or you hit the horse, then you wouldn't go any further. So we knew that that was their, their sort of um, MO. And one particular day in Podiavan Meat Market, we had the, the digger scraping away, and it was very clear that they'd come across something. And I, and I, I was sitting in the back of the car, so I went to move forward, and a young military officer said, stay. And of course, when they've got a gun, you stay. And what they'd done is they'd hit a rat's nest. And of course, he knew how I felt about rodents. So he waited until all the rats had disappeared, and then he said, right, get in. And so you get into the hole with the liquid horse, and that's okay. It's, it's better that than having one rat in, in the place. And then you've got to clear the liquid horse out to then be able to get down to the bodies underneath. And you just, you know what the smell is, um, and it becomes familiar to you, but it's never, ever pleasant. You just get used to it. Wow. <laughs> See, this is perfectly normal for me. It's not for the rest of us, though. <laughs> How did you talk to your children about your work? Um, so I have three girls. Um, they are 34, 23, and 21. So they're grown women now. 
All of them have been in my dissecting room for different reasons. So my oldest is in um, a form of physical therapy, so she came in and did a little bit of, of learning from the dissecting room. Um, my middle one is a nurse, and so she is completely and, and utterly au fait with it all. Um, we're, we're mortally disappointed in our youngest daughter because she's chosen to become a lawyer, which is just <laughs> unacceptable. Um, but she's the fearless one. And so she came into the dissecting room when we were doing our, our disaster victim training and such things, and she would help out. So they have no fear of death. And the first body that they saw was their grandmother. And when my mother died, I asked the three of them, did they want to see their granny? And it was up to them, there's no pressure from me. And they went into a little huddle and they decided that, yes, they wanted to see granny. So we went into the room where she was laid out and I sort of stood back because this was, this was their moment. It was their time that they would remember <clears throat> what it was like to be in the presence of a dead body. And my oldest and my middle kept a very respectable distance. Sorry, I'm going to cough. <coughs> kept a very respectable distance and were clearly quite comfortable there. And the little one, who was, who was very little at the time, she was the one, no fear, leant forward into the coffin, picked up Granny's hand, held Granny's hand, stroked Granny's hand. And at that point, you thought, they have no distance. Death doesn't cause a distance for them. And so our middle daughter, absolutely no... She would sit at a bedside of somebody dying in her ward and have no difficulty holding their hands through their last moments. So I think they have a very healthy attitude to death, None of them want to do what I've done, which is absolutely fine. But the element of the important bit, which I think is that, that death moment and being dead, they don't have problems with. So when my father died, I mean, this, maybe we're a strange family, I don't know. But when my father died, he was cremated. And so we had a little box with granddad in it. And we didn't want to bury him until um, his grandson could come over from Ireland. So granddad sat in the hallway in a box. And when it came to Christmas Day, we thought, you know, actually, Grandad ought to have Christmas dinner. So Grandad sat his box with a hat on top of it at the end of our Christmas dinner table. And we talked about him as if he was there. And I think, you know, they've got a really healthy understanding of what it's like. We don't... I wanted to... We're running out of time, I'm afraid. But I did want to, before we ended, talk a bit about... Because there's a real message in this book, I think, which is about the normalisation of death, like culturally, as thinking about our own deaths and the death of our families, that there's probably a different way we could do it to the way we most of us do it, which is to try and not talk about it, to make no plans, to hope it never happens. Um, and I know when I finished reading this book, I went straight on to Google to work out how to um, give my body to science, because you're a great kind of advocate for that. And I was talking to one of our volunteers this morning who had also read the book, and we were discussing how we thought we might like to... Um, you know, Isn't what that might brilliant? To us. Would you have done that before? No, and I was like, Isn't this is great? an amazing conversation. So I wanted to give you a couple of moments <laughs> just before we end to tell us all what we should do in terms of planning, in terms of maybe how we would like our bodies to go to science or maybe what we, the options of what we could have. It, it is so personal. <laughs> Death is so personal. But it, you know, in case any of you were any doubt, by the way, it's going to happen. You are going to die, okay? So, and I can't wait. I think it's going to be the most marvelous experience. It's a once-in-a-lifetime experience, okay? And you need to prepare for it. But how you prepare for it is up to you. You know, um, I, I am very clear what I'd like to happen. But what you like and what will actually happen, of course, could be entirely different things. So, you know, any of us could go in the next 10 minutes. Don't, but we could. But, you know, somewhere in the future, I want to be in control over how I die. I'm a control freak. I don't want to become medicalized. Mm. I don't want to be in an opiate... I don't, I, I'd feel cheated if I died in my sleep. I don't want to die in my sleep. I want to know what my grandmother's friend looks like, what she sounds like, what she tastes like, what she feels like. I want to know what death actually feels like in all, in all genuine scientific curiosity. I don't believe there's anything going to happen beyond there, because when the light goes out, I'll experience it, and then it's gone. But I want to know, so that I don't want to be medicalised, I don't want to be hospitalised, but I do want to be in control of it. So I'd like to have the pill that allows me to decide when I've got all of my affairs in order, I want to be able to decide today's the day I don't go any further. 
I then want my body to be dissected because I'd, I'd be a hypocrite of an anatomist <laughs> if I didn't go for dissection. I hold a, uh, an organ donor card and I'll keep that organ donor card for as long as my organs have value because if somebody can live with, with what's left of this, then that, that to me has a priority. But failing that, I want to be dissected. And then when I'm dissected, they can gather together all the, the muscle and the fat and the, the brain and the skin and all those bits, and they can burn that so there'll be nothing left because be, it, it will completely vaporize. But I want them to keep my bones, and I want them to boil the bones to get rid of all the fat, and I want them to restring my skeleton so that I can stand in my dissecting room and teach for the rest of my death. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I don't think we can top that for fine, for last words. So, thank you ever so oh, much. Oh, you're Sue. very welcome. You're absolutely, you. you're a complete inspiration. I love having you here. Normal. Come back to Durham every year. We love you. Oh, and, thank you. Um, Sue, so we'll be signing books in the bookshop to the left as you come out. Please let's thank Sue for a fantastic event. Oh, thank event. you. You're very You've been listening to the New Writing North podcast recorded at Durham Book Festival 2018. Durham Book Festival is a Durham County Council event produced by New Writing North with support from Durham University and Arts Council England. New Writing New North. Writing North. New Writing You're North. listening to a podcast New by New North. Writing North.